1: Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry the 7th with your hosts Graham Duke and Ali Hood.
0: Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rackfactor reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth the Second. First of all, we've had some messages from uh, some of our listeners on previous episodes. All
1: right.
0: Laura, who's been catching up um, for a while um, on William Rufus, uh, said, I like Rufus. He sounds like he would have been fun to go to the pub with, and he might let me borrow some of his pointy shoes like a medieval gay best friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Henry I, she loved the fact that he died after eating lampreys. Uh, it says she went to a lecture by a food historian and he said that apparently lampreys are considered to be an aphrodisiac in the medieval times. So that perhaps could explain Henry's illegitimate children uh, of 20 right. and uh, his avidly heterosexual personality.
1: Right, it's more to lampreys than we first thought.
0: Indeed, and indeed ironic that he had problems siring a legitimate heir.
1: Even then, he died by the... yeah,
0: yeah. David Nolan um, on Edward III said that he was pleased that we didn't deduct too many points from him on account of how things ended. So he had a great reign early on, but then as he got old,
1: uh, and it all lasted tailed yeah. off a
0: bit. He said to judge his long reign on how it ended would have been as bizarre as judging Winston Churchill primarily on the basis of his peacetime administration in the 1950s. Good
1: point. Very good point. Maybe we should do prime ministers next. Maybe. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, thank you for your message. Then you can email us, com. Uh, find us on Twitter, at RexFactorPod. Leave a message on our Facebook page uh, or leave a comment on the website. Uh, so, on with Henry the Seventh. Now, as this is a new dynasty, I think it's probably helpful just to have a quick little bit of a background in terms of who the Tudors are, how do they come to be I love a bit of background. on the throne. So, Henry VII has uh, medieval ancestors in Wales, so it's a Welsh family background. So he'd got some sort of fairly powerful figures mm-hmm. back sort of a few hundred years, but things have gone a little bit downhill for the Tudor family in Wales. Um, so the sons of the Tudor family fought uh, alongside Owain Glyndower, who is this um, great yeah, rebel. Welsh rebel in the reign mm-hmm. of Henry the Fourth? One of the Tudor brothers was executed. The other one ended up becoming a butler to the Bishop of Bangor.
1: That's quite a demotion, isn't it?
0: Quite a demotion indeed. And his son was Owen Tudor. Now, Owen was a Welsh squire, but he was brought back to England by Henry V, who was seeking to undo some of the restrictions his father, Henry the Fourth had imposed on the Welsh. So he brought some Welsh people back, put them in the household, royal household, gave them good positions oh, things okay. to do. After Henry V died, uh, Owen Tudor was employed as a clerk of the wardrobe by Henry's widow, Catherine de Valois, and incredibly, Catherine de Valois and Owen Tudor marry.
1: Ah, uh, yes, this is right. Yeah, yeah
0: so yeah. Catherine de Valois, who's a daughter of the King of France, married to the King of England,
1: mm.
0: marries this lowly Welsh squire.
1: Yeah.
0: In, the four, in no about 1430, there. indeed. So, they have two children, Edmund and Jasper Tudor. Um, Henry VI, he likes them a lot, brings them to court, and makes them respectively uh, the yeah. earls of Pembroke and Richmond. So these are the first sort of proper Welsh nobles at the English court. And so they're part of the Lancastrian group. So right, Henry yeah, VI, yeah, the Lancastrian yeah. king, mm-hmm. the Tudors are on his side. Now, for Henry, and how he... Actually, gets descended from them is by a woman called Margaret Beaufort.
1: Uh, We know them. We know them. Indeed,
0: she was descended from um, Edward III via John of Gaunt's illegitimate Beaufort line. So she was the great great granddaughter of Edward III, um, technically illegitimate. And Henry IV had actually said that the Beaufort line couldn't inherit the throne. So it's dubious whether her royal claims are legitimate or not. But Edmund Tudor married Margaret when she was only twelve years old
1: seen this before, haven't we? This is, yeah. yeah.
0: And um, usually they would delay the consummation of the marriage until the bride's a bit older. But Edmund didn't want to wait and pretty much there and then.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Um, because apparently he wanted an heir and he also wanted life interest in her lands, which you would get.
1: And life in prison.
0: Well, not at that time. <laughs> um, Edmund, while she was pregnant, was captured by the Yorkists and died of the plague before Margaret gave birth. Ah,
1: uh-huh.
0: Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so Margaret uh, Beaufort gives birth. Very difficult labour. Because well, she's only twelve years old. Yeah. Ne- um, she and the child nearly die, but ultimately it they both look like a Russian
1: doll. It's terrible. It would
0: be awful. But <laughs> the child was born successfully. They both lived, and the child is Henry Tudor, aka. And he was Henry born in Pembroke Castle. He was born in Pembroke this Castle. Now, on your yeah. level. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so Henry. Born in 1457, as we said, the son of Edmund Tudor and Margaret Beaufort. Becomes King 1485 when he's about 28 years old. And he's the 13th great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. So
1: she's a little bit Welsh.
0: A little bit Welsh indeed. Mostly it? German. Mostly she yes. <laughs> in terms of his appearance, um, according to his sort of court historian Polydor Virgil, his body was slender but well-built and strong. His height above the average... His appearance was remarkably attractive and his face was cheerful, especially when speaking. His eyes were small and blue, his teeth few, poor and blackish. Uh, hence why his portrait is always his mouth closed.
1: Yeah, you, we can't that see that lovely smile. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: and then his later years, his hair thin and white and his complexion sallow. He's something of a forgotten Tudor. Despite the fact that the Tudors are so famous, Henry the Seventh gets rather left out. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. He's the only one not to appear in the showtime series The Tudors. Yeah. We don't have an awful lot of evidence of his sort of personal papers and letters, so we don't have a lot of his direct words and his direct feelings. And also he gets sandwiched between Richard the Third and Henry the Eighth.
1: Yeah, Biggies. Who are the yeah. two
0: real biggies from this mm. period. So he gets rather overshadowed and also his personality is quite a secretive chap so he's not very forthcoming we don't have that sense of someone imposing himself which to the is whole strange
1: world. for a usurper indeed yes
0: yeah. so let's find out why yeah
1: okay let's go this is the life
0: of henry the Seventh, 1471 when edward the fourth takes his crown back and henry the mm. is uh, put to sleep jasper tudor takes his nephew henry into exile uh, they try to go to france but they end up in court of brittany where they're sort of diplomatic pawns. They're treated pretty well, but there's always a the danger they might get shipped off somewhere. Yeah. Um, Margaret Beaufort, Henry's mother, marries a man called Sir Thomas Stanley, who is a Yorkist in support of Richard III and Edward IV, um, of course. So this sort of secures her position. So she isn't too vulnerable, and she's able to try and influence things to yeah. help Henry. Yeah. Um, Edward IV made a bit of a half-hearted attempt to bring Henry Tudor back, with the promise of a marriage to his daughter Elizabeth of York, but Henry sort of smelled a bit of a trap there and pretended that he was ill, so he didn't come back. Would, was that clever? It was clever, because there was a danger that Edward thought would just put him in jail as a Lancastrian... Oh, so it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a, yeah, right. It wasn't a olive branch yeah. that was being handed across the sea. During the reign of Richard III, uh, Margaret Beaufort plotted with Elizabeth Woodville, who was the widow of Edward IV and the mother everyone, yeah. of the princes of the tower... Uh, Plotted with her and Duke of Buckingham to replace Richard with uh, Henry, the, Henry Tudor. Unfortunately, the rebellion didn't go very well. Buckingham was captured and executed. Henry wasn't able to land and so went back to Brittany. And Margaret only survived because of her marriage to Sir Thomas Stanley, who was loyal to Richard III. Mm.
1: So rather than kill
0: her, Richard said, you know,
1: "Put her, put her in order, man." Mm. This was that, and that was the one where they he sailed up to the coast. And they're saying, come on, come and have a land, yeah. And he
0: thought, no, yeah, right. maybe not. So he's a wily one, Henry VII, he is. And he's yeah. cautious, he knows not to put himself into too much danger. But until um, 1483, Henry's pretty much alone in exile with just his uh, uncle Jasper the, as being the only notable companion. But after Richard usurps the throne for the princes in the tower, then he gets support from ex-Yorkists at court who are disaffected with Richard III.
1: Yeah, and it all starts falling apart And him. he starts yeah. to get some
0: powerful people there. Nevertheless, he's still um, not particularly safe. Richard sent ambassadors to Brittany in 1484, promising them money and weapons in order for them to give Henry back to him. And apparently they were going to, but Henry, again, catches wind of it, escapes off to France in the court of Charles the Eighth.
1: Where was he then? Oh, he was in Brittany, yeah. So yeah. from Brittany, yeah. which yeah, was a separate yeah.
0: uh, duchy at this point of France. So Henry, avoiding capture... From Richard III at all costs, very very wily, but he's got this court now of ex-Yorkists and um, his uncle Jasper Tudor, and also a very powerful Lancastrian who was the Earl of Oxford, John de Vere, who'd fought at the Battle of Barnet, which was one with all the mist. I like that one. So he's got a proper old uh, fighter there, and he promised to all of them on Christmas Day um, at Wren's Cathedral that if he became king, he would marry Elizabeth of York, the daughter of Edward the Fourth, and thus. He would unite the Lancastrian and the Yorkists.
1: Uh, and that's where we get the Tudor Rose.
0: Indeed, so he makes a pledge to do this, and sure enough, in 1485, he invades, lands in Milford Haven, plays mm. up his Welshness very well, and he mm. gets support, he's allowed to progress, people join him, and it works very well for him. So he gets to Bosworth to take on Richard III. As we covered last time, outnumbered um, by Richard III, but Richard III's men didn't really fight from Northumberland. Didn't join in the battle. And the Stanley family stayed on the sidelines until they saw that Richard could be defeated, at which point they storm in. Richard mm. is killed. And um, apparently his crown, Richard III, fell off and was apparently found on a hawthorn bush. So then Sir William Stanley picks it up and on the battlefield puts it on Henry's head and declares him King of England.
1: That's cool.
0: Very cool. So Henry is king and he's won it through conquests. But... He's got a very vulnerable position. As we said, he didn't have many people with him for a long time when he was in exile. Mm. And when they do come over, they're all Yorkists, basically. So he hasn't got many Lancastrians who are actually behind him. Yeah. He hasn't got a big family base. He's an only child. He's not really got much support. And he's been living in exile since he was 14. Mm. So he's, he's, you know he's not got a lot of people out there that really know who he is. Moreover, he doesn't actually have any experience of the English court... Or indeed how to run an estate. So he doesn't really know anything about government or about life in England.
1: Yeah, all the gear but no idea.
0: Indeed. Nice rhyme. And what's more, he's got a pretty weak claim to the throne. As we've said, it's via John of Gaunt's illegitimate line and through a woman, Margaret Beaufort. So the paternal line are these lovely Welsh people.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so why then would people support him? Just because he he Richard was so hated and he gave the opportunity to unite the two houses?
0: Yeah, and there were no other Lancastrians who could claim the throne. So all the other uh, Lanca- Lancaster house people are gone. However, there are rival Plantagenets on the Yorkist side who are still alive. Right. So again, he's by no means secure. There are people who could challenge him for the throne. He's so not really as did- good a...
1: yeah. He did need to make that ma- marriage with, with Elizabeth.
0: He does indeed. Right. But okay. he hasn't made it yet. All right. OK. And he faces many threats to his throne throughout Lorraine. first one is um, through Francis Lovell and the Stafford brothers in 1486, so just a year after Bosworth. Francis Lovell was one of Richard III's most trusted supporters, escaped from the Battle of Bosworth and um, found sanctuary in Colchester. And there he met up with the two sons of the Duke of Buckingham, Humphrey and Thomas Stafford. And They decided the only way they were ever going to get themselves back to a prominent position of court was if they replaced Henry with the Earl of Warwick. And the Earl of Warwick is the son of George, Duke of Clarence, who was the brother of Edward IV and Richard III. He was the one that was drowned in a vat of wine.
1: Hold the phone, hang on. Lots of people here. Yeah.
0: Remember to check out our who's who if this yeah. gets confusing.
1: Wasn't... So what's his relation, the Earl of Warwick, to the Earl of Warwick that we all know and love, Kingmaker?
0: No no relation to Warwick the Kingmaker. Right. Edward the Fourth had two brothers, George, Duke of Clarence, and Richard Third. George, Duke of Clarence, was executed for being a bit of a traitor against Edward. Right. But he had a son, who technically, of course, therefore, has a very strong claim to the throne as one of the Yorkists. Yeah. Richard Third was able to bypass him because... The father had been declared a traitor that illegitimised yeah, yeah. the son. But now that Richard's gone and all the other Yorkists are gone, now they're saying, well, this guy. Okay, right. So he's, he's, he's got he's a strong to claim to the throne. Yeah. But he's been in prison ever since 1485, imprisoned by Henry VII, mm. as you would. Mm. So they are planning to put Warwick on the throne instead, kill Henry near York, pretty much assassination, and then proclaim Warwick as king.
1: Which is a good plan.
0: Good plan. However, uh, the Earl of Northumberland saves Henry from an assassination attempt in, in New York Minster. Staffords uh, raise a rebellion in Worcestershire, but Lovell forced a retreat by uh, Jasper Tudor, uncle of Henry VII, and then they're all forced to flee. Uh, Lovell managed to escape to the court at Burgundy, but the Staffords are captured Abingdon and executed. Anyway, that's that one dealt with. Now, a bigger one Lambert Simnel.
1: Ah, now I know this name.
0: Mm. Lambert Simnel, in 1487, a rumour came around that the Earl of Warwick had escaped from the Tower of London. Yeah. Um, and Simnel was a person, of, really just a commoner from Oxford, but he was trained up by a priest to impersonate the Earl of Warwick. And um, Henry paraded the real Warwick because he got him imprisoned yeah. in the way that Richard III couldn't with the princes in the Tower.
1: Yeah, yeah, more evidence. Henry
0: VII does with Warwick, but he's unable to stop him. Stop the rumors. Part of the reason Henry isn't able to stop the rumors is, is that Lambert Simnel has some very prominent supporters across Europe. Chief among whom is Margaret of Burgundy. Margaret of Burgundy was the sister of Edward IV and Richard III, and thus somebody who should know if her relations are real. Yeah, not. yeah. As Polydor Virgil said, that uh, Margaret of Burgundy, hating Henry with a truly insatiable hatred, as she did. Burning with unquenchable rage, she can never resist any scheme that might somehow do harm to the man who is head of the rival family.
1: So she's willing to pretend... That she's channel. willing to
0: do anything to bring down Henry and put the Yorkists back mm-hmm. on the throne. Um, Francis Lovell, who'd escaped from that earlier plot, is taken in by Margaret at the court of Burgundy. Together they decide that they're going to support the rebellions and they're going to support the Lambert-Simnel case. There is also a man called John de la Pole. He was the grandson... Of Richard, Duke of York, who was the father of Edward the Fourth, yeah. Richard Third. Yeah. So again, he's got a bit of a claim to the throne.
1: It's all better than Henry, anyway.
0: It's all better than Henry. So again, there's a the hope that we might have a John the Second here. So oh, he right, use land yeah. 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 to get rid of Henry, yeah. and then but put John, John de la Pole yeah. on the throne. Also, there's a man called Gerald Fitzgerald, who's the eighth Earl of Kildare in Ireland, and he's pretty much ruling um, Ireland, or at least ruling the Pale, which is the English bit of Ireland. This right. period, he's disaffected with Henry the Seventh, and of course he's in Ireland. Lambert Simnel's in Ireland. Gerald Fitzgerald and the Irish declare him and crown him in Dublin. Edward the Sixth.
1: Crown. Yeah. Crown Lambert Simnel as
0: King Edward the Sixth in Dublin. In Dublin.
1: So, so there's an aura of farce around it. This bit.
0: There's a bit of an aura of farce, but at the same time, we've got very powerful people. Yeah recognising him And that's as all king.
1: they've got to go on. They're just putting out this... Mm. OK, we want to see how this pans out.
0: So, preparations are made to invade England. So, Henry bases himself, where else? Kenilworth Castle. Excellent. Points in his favour, prepares for the invasion, and they come over. So, um, John de la Pole leads the army, but Siminal's there as well. Land in Lancashire, but they fight at Stoke. So we have a battle at Stoke. Um, Oxford, the Earl of Oxford, leads the royal troops. Heavy fighting, but the superior firepower and arm of the English is too strong and the rebels are destroyed. The Outcome know? is John de Paul is killed in battle. Lambert Simnel, treated with great clemency by Henry, put to work in the royal kitchens and uh, later promoted to the position
1: of Faulkner. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because
0: he was obviously...
1: A chancer, he just liked it. Yeah, uh...
0: so he thought, oh, well, give him a job. He's not a threat. He, was, he wasn't a threat because he definitely, definitely wasn't the Earl of Warwick. Wow. So he treats him quite nicely, puts him to work. That's brilliant. Francis Lovell, meanwhile, escapes to Scotland and then pretty much disappears from record. yeah. So, job done.
1: I like that. That's a good story.
0: Now, you'd said about the importance of marrying Elizabeth of York, it's actually only after this that they marry, in 1487. I
1: would have put all this to bed, though.
0: The reasons why he might have delayed, you remember there was that rumour that Elizabeth of York might have had a sexual relationship with Richard III?
1: Yes, so it suggested yes, yes, that Henry
0: yes. might have been waiting to make sure that she wasn't pregnant oh, with right. okay. Richard's yeah. child, which she wasn't. Also, Henry needed to establish his own claim to the throne, so he needed to be king in his own right, because technically Elizabeth's claim as the daughter of Edward IV was better than Henry's.
1: Oh, so she can mar- he could marry her, yeah. <laughs> put all this to bed, and then she'd go, well, I'm queen. Yeah,
0: yeah, so he didn't want to be king because he was married to her, he wanted yeah. to be king... In his own right, but he did need to shore up the Yorkist support. So he married in 1487, but that's not the end to Henry's troubles. Right, a real big name comes along at this point: Perkin Warbeck.
1: I do know, but I'm more familiar with Lambert Simnel.
0: Well, Perkin Warbeck is similar to Lambert Simnel, but much more of a threat to Henry, and he troubles him for years and years and years. Again, pops up in Ireland, this time in Cork, and uh, he was claimed himself to be. Prince, Prince Richard i.e. one of the younger of the two princes in the oh, tower yeah, no, yeah. now this is even worse because this isn't just
1: it's direct isn't it? yeah.
0: this is actually someone who if he is alive should definitely be king um, and he says he's escaped from the Tower of London he's ready to take his throne back
1: how old would he have been?
0: at this point yeah. he's about ooh, 18 or something like this he's, yeah. he's a decent age now he's definitely old enough to, yeah, to be at the head of a yeah. rebellion In his own words, um, he said, I myself, then nearly nine years of age, was also delivered to a certain Lord to be killed, but it pleased divine clemency that that Lord, having compassion on my innocence, preserved me alive in safety, i.e. from murder in the Tower of London. First, however, causing me to swear in the Holy Sacraments that to no one should I disclose my name, origin or family until a certain number of years had passed, i.e. that's why you haven't heard much from me for the last ten years now I'm back.
1: done, this is what I want to do. Yes.
0: And um, people believed him. A chronicler time said he kept such a princely countenance and so counterfeit a majesty royal that all men did firmly believe that he was extracted of the noble house and family of the Dukes of York. I.e. he really looked like he could be the son of Edward IV. So all he
1: had to do at this time to be king was just pretend... Well, Maybe.
0: yeah, because good, people didn't know what had happened to the princes, that and learn Latin,
1: and then presumably well no one else knows. he must have been king.
0: Exactly. Um, and again, like Lambert Simnel, he gets recognised across Europe as being Prince Richard, as being the Duke of York, not just Margaret of Burgundy, but Charles the Eighth, the King of France, Maximilian the Holy Roman Emperor, yeah. and James the Fourth of Scotland. So he's being recognised by the kings of Europe. Uh oh. Indeed. Mm. Bigger oh. And he's a massive threat. A surviving son of Edward IV would automatically reclaim loyalties of lots of powerful nobles, however great the risk of rebellion. They would put their necks on the line if they thought this guy was genuine. Henry set up spy networks and he established that there were many people who actually were going to support Warbeck in the case of an invasion, including Sir William Stanley, who was the man who intervened at Bosworth, put the crown on Henry's head.
1: Yeah, because they all hated Richard.
0: They all hated Richard, but they didn't love Henry.
1: No, so they were just, yeah, exactly. yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: So he dealt with that, um, executed Sir William Stanley in 1495. This was a key reason why in England rebellion never builds up because Henry kind of stamps it out mm. before it comes along too long. But international support meant there was threats of invasion, similar to what Henry did in 1485. Charles the Eighth and Maximilian were both prepared to support invasions. Um, and Henry, although he presumed it was a trick by Margaret of Burgundy... He wasn't quite sure himself. So there was a little voice probably in the back of Henry's mind saying, oh God, what if it is
1: Well, he would, I Prince suppose, wouldn't he? I mean, we were still having an hour, didn't yeah, we? Yeah,
0: nobody knew, and it could have been he genuine. He spent a lot of time and money finding out exactly who Warbeck was.
1: And how did he find out?
0: Well, I mean, his spies and people all across Europe established that he wasn't yeah. who he said he was and that he was, um, I think, a sort of Dutch or Flemish extraction.
1: Right. Yeah, you should have just listened to this.
0: Indeed, yeah, he should, a bit late. Um, however, Henry does have to deal with it, and deal with it he does. Um, he uses international diplomacy to great effect. In France, Charles VIII was hoping to use Warbeck to keep England out of Brittany, with whom France was engaged in mm-hmm. ongoing conflict. So in 1492, Henry launches an invasion of France, uh, leading to a peace treaty, Treaty of Etaple, in which Charles agreed to drop his support for Perkin-Warbeck. So France... No longer supported. He did
1: war. that specifically to drop that. Yeah. Wow, that is a lot of money.
0: Yeah. Burgundy. Um, it was likely that he was trained in Yorkist court etiquette by Mark Margaret of Burgundy. So that's how he was able to convince people, and her recognition of him aided people across Europe because she would know who her nephew was. Henry and uh, Duke Philip of Burgundy. Initially, there was something of a trade war and protectionism. The two countries against each other, but then. They came to an accord and Henry struck an important trade deal with the Duke which undermined Margaret of Burgundy, undermined her support of Perkin Warbeck and Burgundy pretty much neutralised. Good move. It's a good move. James IV in Scotland was hoping to recover Berwick from England. which Uh, is a little bit. And also his international prestige. 1496 97 he launched raids into northern England. Wasn't able to achieve very much. There was no real... Upsurge in popularity for Warbeck, and ultimately James dumps him. Warbeck sent back to Ireland.
1: So he's got no one now.
0: He's no one. He's back in Ireland. However, in 1497, um, Henry, pretty annoyed that James the Fourth trying to invade with Warbeck, decides I am going to take Scotland. Mm-hmm. Memory of Edward the First, of course. Secures, who would have done it? Oh, we would have done it. Secures a huge loan of fifty thousand pounds and taxation of hundred and twenty thousand pounds to fund a fleet of 5,000, an army of 10,000, and huge trains of artillery to invade Scotland. He's going to teach them a lesson. Mm. Unfortunately, down in Cornwall, a long way from Scotland, people aren't very happy about the large taxation with uh, Scotland, and a major uprising takes place. There's about 15,000 men of these rebels marching across the south, and then they start to march on London. Uh-oh. Indeed I Henry has to abandon the invasion of Scotland, gets a Royal Army together, led, as ever, by the trusty Earl of Oxford, and the rebels are defeated.
1: And that's the end of his Scottish campaign?
0: Oh, a Scottish campaign abandoned, because he had to deal with the Cornish uprising.
1: To have wasted all that money? Yeah. That's a shocker.
0: Mm. So, Scotland ignored, Cornwall uprising dealt with, but they're still perkin Warbeck. He spent a bit too long dilly-dallying in Ireland... And then he came over to Cornwall to take advantage.
1: Oh, right.
0: But he did it a few months after the rebellion, yeah. when it wasn't still at its peak. Um, as it was, the Royal Army once again storms down, and this time there's no fight, there's no battle. Perkin Warbeck is captured and confesses to having been an imposter. Cool. Well, initially, again, showing great clemency imprisoned obviously yeah. Became a kind of
1: stable boy yes <laughs>
0: 1498 he escapes from the Tower of London though is soon captured and put back again and then 1499 Henry decides he needs to get rid of all these threats to his throne once and for all concocts a plot said to have been engineered between the Earl of Warwick who's still there in prison and Perkin Warbeck and uses that as an excuse to have them both executed fair enough so 1499 Perkin Warbeck and the Earl of Warwick are okay, dead no and he's okay. all right.
1: He's all right. He's secured it.
0: So his later years, Um, one of the m- most important things um, is his relationship with Spain. Now, Spain had been lots of different kingdoms, but Ferdinand II of Aragon and Isabella of Castile marry in 1469, which unites Spain's leading Christian kingdoms. And they become very, very powerful, drive the Moors, who are sort of Muslim North Africans out of kingdom of Granada, uh, used the Inquisition, when well indeed introduced, the Spanish mm-hmm. Inquisition, to expel Jews and Muslims from the country. And they're now rivaling France in terms of their dominance in Europe, their dominance over Italy and the papacy. And Henry the Seventh links up with them and they have an alliance, and there's a marriage between the Spanish infanta, Catherine of Aragon, and Henry the Seventh's eldest son, Prince Arthur. So fifteen oh one, the two are married. Now, Prince Arthur is Henry's eldest son, born in 1486 and obviously the heir to the throne. But he was premature, about a month premature when he was born. Undersized and quite a sickly child, unlike his rather more robust younger brother, Prince Henry. Right. Henry VIII. Um, And unfortunately, a few months after their marriage, at Ludlow Castle, Arthur dies in 1502. How old is he? Um, He's about 15, right, at this point. Um, Yeah, 15 or 16. Maybe severe chest infection, tuberculosis, or sweating sickness, this mysterious Tudor period illness.
1: I don't want to sound seedy. Was it consummated?
0: Well, we will discuss that at great length under Henry VIII, as it's a very important question. In terms of the reaction, Henry, absolutely grief-stricken when he hears that his beloved elder son has died. Elizabeth of York, his wife and the mother, came into his room to comfort him, but then when she went back to her room, apparently she broke down in tears herself. So Henry... Came back into her room. They comforted each other, spent quite a lot of time on their own together. Both very, very sad and upset oh. about all this. Yeah. What they decide to do is uh, to try and have another child. So very soon later, in 1503, Elizabeth gives birth to a daughter called Catherine. But unfortunately, the girl and Elizabeth herself die. Oh, quite this soon is afterwards. So on her 37th birthday, she's quite old really, Elizabeth York dies, 1503. Again, Henry, grief-stricken, apparently shuts himself away, he wouldn't speak to anyone for several days, suffered a severe illness, wasn't able to eat or drink for about a week, nearly died himself. And it was over a month before he resumed his former activities. And he sort of looked at potentially some political marriage, but never really pursued it with much vigour, and when he did actually die, chose to be married next to Elizabeth of York. Although it had been kind of political marriage, there was a a lot of actual affection there. And then his later years, increasingly ill health, sort of fell ill annually in springtime with uh, respiratory problems. Prematurely aged from the stress of his reign and his personal losses. Increasingly paranoid and greedy in his governance, Kept his only son, Prince Henry, very close, confined, and quite awkward relationship. And then in 1509, probably from tuberculosis, Henry the Seventh died.
1: And then on to your favourite chap.
0: And then on to favourite chap, but that is the That's reign him. of Henry the Seventh.
1: Well, I didn't know any of it, really, (laughs) apart from these impostors, and I can kind of see why he's overlooked, Mm. because other than uniting stuff, there's not much there, but I guess we can break it down.
0: Let's break it down and look at it in a bit more detail.
1: Battliness! So,
0: battliness, how good was he in battle? Firstly, the case for him. Got First of all, of course, the Battle of Bosworth.
1: It's pretty good going.
0: Very good going. Um. He made extensive preparations, assembled a big fleet and army in France, made secret inquiries into England as to what support he would get from the nobility, and particularly made contact with the Earl of Northumberland and the Stanley family, who, of course, their intervention or non-intervention proved crucial in the battle itself.
1: Well, this is what this I'd say that almost goes against him because he didn't oh, but win he, the war. He planned so. it. Yeah, he's, he's wily. So. I don't know if he's a warrior. He's a wily I mean, warrior. But, I mean, how much of the fight? Well, He was in the Battle of Bosworth, wasn't he? He, he was,
0: was, even though Henry, completely inexperienced in battle at this point, never fought before. Um, but apparently he he did have to fight when Richard III charged at him and his household. Oh, yeah. Lasted longer than people were expecting him to last, i.e. at all. And it's even possible, as he said, that he might have had to hold Richard III off himself at one point. So he does acquit himself in mm. battle when he has to. And he wins the throne through conquest, which very, very few kings actually ever do. Yeah. At uh, the Battle of Stoke, of course, we had John de la Pole and Lambert Simnel, mainly Irish army. Again, Henry is able to gather a very large army, much larger than the rebels, basing himself in Kenilworth, which you love, gives mm-hmm. the lead to Oxford. The um, Royalists had superior firepower in numbers. And, fact, the Irish, um, who were the bulk of the army, didn't really have proper protective armour and clothing. So the archers were able to do rather what extensive do. damage, yeah. indeed. But it's the second battle... Uh, to secure the kingdom almost as many years. And it's often seen, the Battle of Stokes, the last battle of the Wars of the Roses.
1: Yeah, it kind of puts it all... So he's, yeah, in a way, full stop.
0: he's put that to bed.
1: Yeah, which yeah, could have done by marrying Elizabeth earlier, but... Maybe. Mm. Of
0: course, we have the Cornish uprising 1497 as well. It's, it's 15,000 people marching on London, very scary. Mm. Battle of Blackheath again, Henry Mar- uh, musters a huge army... Quickly wins the day against the ill experienced and ill equipped Cornishmen. Mm. So he's able to get troops together very quickly and stamp out rebellions before they become too dangerous. Now, Perkin Warbeck, no battles, of course, against Perkin Warbeck, but we have that spy network we're doing really well, rooted out potential treason from Sir William Stanley, again, dealt with it before a dangerous rebellion could be organised. France, in 1492, he invades and sort of forces France to come to an accord in which they drop their support of mm. Warbeck. Also got the Burgundians um, stop supporting him. And of course, um, Warbeck did attempt to come over with an army in Cornwall, but again, stuffed out. Quite a big development in Ireland in this period. As we've seen, Ireland actually quite troublesome because they supported both Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck. Mm, yeah. So any of the seven thinking, well, I'm a bit You know, I've had enough of this, frankly. Mm. So, historically, Ireland was meant to be um, a lord, uh, under English lordship. So, since John the Second, John pulling out the beards, (laughs) King of England is meant to be the Lord of Ireland. In reality, English kings have very little power, and actually it's um, the Kildare family and the Pale who are really ruling the country. Right. Um, But, it's problematic for Henry, as you've seen, they're supporting these impostors, so what Henry does is introduce Poyning's Law, or I suppose Poyning introduced Poyning's Law. And this prohibits the Irish Parliament from passing any legislation without prior approval from the English Parliament. So for the first time, constitutionally, Ireland is brought to heel under English rule. Just
1: because he said so? Well, just they really anyway. put in the rule. But yeah. what
0: this meant was Ireland weren't able to sanction any rival claimants anymore. Because mm. Henry would have to agree to it first, which obviously he wasn't going to do. Yeah. Um, it wasn't meant to be an imperialist act, but ultimately it does bring Ireland sort of closer within the fold. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Foreign policy, he has a lot of successes. With Spain, of course, he gets that marriage alliance with Arthur and uh, Catherine of Aragon. Yeah. Scotland, ultimately, James IV gives up and Perkin Walbeck, and then in 1503, James IV marries the eldest daughter of Henry VII, Margaret Tudor. Which is how the Stuarts and the Scots end up having a claim to the English throne yeah, through oh, that marriage. Afters, yeah. mm. And the real credit to him is, he survives. He was in a very weak position in 1485. No power base, uh, power base, no experience, no loyal supporters in the country. Faces lots and lots of rebellions and people trying to steal his throne. But he survives. Yeah. And you'll like this. Um, he subsidised shipbuilding and in 1495 commissioned Europe's first and the world's oldest surviving dry dock.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Why? That's,
0: That's a bit of a plus point for him.
1: That's a plus point. I mean, go on, let's do these wimp with the um, bad bits. Yeah, the bad
0: point. bits, as you sort of alluded to when we came mm. to Bosworth. Henry isn't a soldier. He's no. not a military man. At Bosworth, you can say he's attacked, he's defended, he's crowned, he's never actually doing. Mm. He's always just being led. He's always responding to other people's actions. And although he's a good leader of men in terms of keeping people on his side, in terms of the battle, Oxford leads the troops at uh, Bosworth, he leads them at Stoke, and he leads them at Blackheath. Henry, other than Bosworth, never involved in the fighting. And even at Bosworth, Henry's always at the back. He's never involved. He's always sending other people yeah. to do his fighting for him.
1: Yeah, but, but as <clears> you say, I mean, he did win that battle, hmm. and he was there.
0: And also he has unfulfilled invasions. Apparently he was considering invading Ireland at one point, but had to reconsider when Simnel Ireland, invaded England instead. Scotland, he raised all that money to go and invade the country, but then an uprising in Cornwall went. He had to come all the way back again and couldn't deal with Scotland. France in 1492, although he was successful in terms of bringing France to a peace treaty and dropping Warbeck, Nevertheless, it's hardly a Henry V going over and conquering France.
1: No, but I reckon that, that was... I mean, I think that was always his aim, wasn't it? Just yeah. to... He wasn't... As I say, he wasn't a warrior. So he used war as, di- as diplomacy and got his way. Mm. Strongly reminiscent
0: of Edward IV, who in 1475 simply invaded France, but really just wanted to get a good peace treaty. Yeah, just it. to
1: push them back a bit. Mm. Um, so that is the military yeah. record of Henry
0: the VII weirdly considering that he's one of the only kings to have won the crown through battle he's not really a battlely king
1: no I've got the, I've got to give him I've got to give him five because he won he won the crown by force
0: in one of the biggies yeah Bosworth.
1: in, in everyone's battle um, but I'm not going to give him any more hmm. because he wasn't there's no big battles there's little uprisings put down that I yeah. think in other yeah. reigns we probably would never hear about um, and he's not leading the troops, and his other campaigns never get off the ground. Although perhaps like the French one, that was always the aim. Mm. It's not. It doesn't really. It's not really battliness, mm. which probably might work well for him for um, subjectivity. Maybe. But five is all I'm doing there. I'm gonna give him. I'm gonna
0: give him five and a half because I think it's. I think he needs to be over the. Threshold of the halfway point because he is able to engineer the situation in such a way that he wins. Even mm. if he's not charging with a sword himself, which is what you want, but nevertheless, he makes sure that he wins and yeah. he survives. And it was very difficult for him to survive and he does do it. No, in fact, I'm going to give him a six for that. Okay. Well, so, uh, yeah, fair enough. So that's an 11 for battliness.
1: Scandal.
0: Biggest thing here is the judicial murder. The Earl of Warwick. Yeah. As so said, he was uh, the son of George, Duke of Clarence, nephew of Edward IV and Richard III, named as heir by Richard apparently when he was um, when um, Warwick was ten years old. But imprisoned from 1485 onwards by Henry VII. He was said to have been rather simple. Not sure whether that was because of medical reasons or because he's basically just been stuck in prison since he was ten years old and doesn't know
1: yeah, anything work, really. Yeah.
0: Uh, but in 1499, Henry fed up with Warbeck and also desperate to get this Spanish marriage mm. organised, and it was intimated to him by a Spanish envoy that they were going to be reluctant to do so while there were clear and present threats to his reign, i.e. get rid of them.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Concocts a uh, plot between Warbeck and Warwick so that he can, just as an excuse so that he can then execute them, which he does. So it's a judicial murder, hugely unpopular... Arguably not justified. Catherine of Aragon always felt guilty that her first marriage was, as she said, made in blood. Later, saw her suffering almost as divine retribution for oh, really? what had happened there. So she felt guilty about it. The people were very unhappy about it. Made Henry very unpopular. Not very good. No. Not very nice. Right. Catherine of Aragon herself was a bit of a victim to Henry the Seventh because Arthur, um, of course, died in 1502. Uh, so she's still there in England with not married anymore. So initially Henry um, tries very hard to get papal dispensation for her to marry Prince Henry, his other son, um, which he does do in 1504, but by that point he was uh, considering a French alliance and came to see Catherine as a bit of an annoyance, an inconvenience. But he wasn't willing to send her back because that would mean he'd lose the relationship with Spain and more importantly the sizeable dowry. Yeah. So Catherine lost her servants, wasn't given money for clothes or decent food, living in rather obscure conditions, not allowed to return home. She's pretty miserable, and she's treating pretty badly. Really? Mm.
1: That is terrible. You know, that's, um, that wasn't, well, he wasn't touched on in the Tudors at all, but, you know, you should never hear about this earlier marriage, really. Yeah. And Elizabeth
0: Woodville, who was uh, his mother-in-law, mother of Elizabeth of York and widow of Edward IV, she was relegated to rather lowly status, deprived of her dower lands. It was suggested that she might have conspired in favour of Lambert Simnel. This seems an odd thing for her to do when her daughter is Queen of England, so yeah. more likely Henry didn't trust her and wanted her land, mm. which he duly took. And she really wasn't very um, well off at all by the end of her life, so in her will she said, I have no worldly goods to do the Queen's grace, I, her da- my nearest daughter, neither to any of my children according to my heart and mind. Apparently she then had a very low-key funeral with no major magnates present. Some of her uh, memorial for her was forty shillings paid by her son, Marcus of Dorset. No, mari- uh, no masses were arranged for her soul by Henry. Christ. So again, a very powerful woman, but not given uh, okay. much uh, respect there.
1: What, what happened to her son? Do we see him again?
0: Dorset. He dies oh. at some point. He's imprisoned at one stage by Henry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, know, we've got a few things there which you know aren't very pleasant. A no. Um, on the uh, on the good side, um, I'm afraid there's no sexiness and any of that going on. No saucy times. He um, is entirely faithful to Elizabeth of York.
1: Yes, it's not going to be very good, is it? I Nothing mean, got, very juicy. you got a murder. Yeah. Um, But it's not... It is cold-blooded, but I mean, it was for a reason and he at least concocted something and went through due process... And it was
0: 14 years after he'd originally imprisoned him as well, so it's not this sort of ruthless Richard III no, disappearing just, in the tower
1: or um, putting on that whole show and pulling him out of Parliament and beheading yeah. there. and Then, but it is a murder. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to give him anything for shabby treatment of um, Catherine. I just think that's interesting. Mm. And for I mean, he just doesn't really care for these two women in his life, which is mm. a, a terrible. It's a bad trait. Yes, <laughs> obviously, kids out there. Yeah. Um, I just don't think there's ter- very much to go. It's not on.
0: great. It's not great. Two. Mm. Yeah. I'm, g- I'm giving a four for the Warwicky thing, but let's say it's not great. So yeah. it's only a six for Henry the Seventh for scandal.
1: Mm. Subjectivity.
0: Well, there's a lot more to discuss. Yeah, the subjectivity. Is. First off, the most famous thing about Henry VII, which is generally praised by all historians, is his financial management. <laughs> he takes a very, very personal approach, takes strong personal interest in controlling and managing finances. He personally audited and signed every page of his chamber accounts. So it's not just giving it to other people. He's, you know, he's,
1: he's checking doing it, yeah. it
0: himself. used the royal household rather than the exchequer so that he's got more control mm. over everything. He's almost like the sort of chief executive, a sort of modern professional manager.
1: Well, yeah, I was going to yeah, like an accountant.
0: <coughs> yeah, on the international stage, he takes a keen interest in trade and various treaties of winning uh, privileges for English merchants. Uh, finances um, cabots, uh, voyages of exploration. So the cabots were uh, Genoese merchants who went off exploring. So this is the early stage mm. of exploration. 1492 is when Columbus. Yeah. Finds America. They find Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Hudson Bay. Uh,
1: right.
0: Henry the yeah. Seventh gives them a little sponsorship, helps them on their way. The results of all of this are that um, the royal income increases substantially. Under Henry the Sixth, it was about forty thousand pounds a year. Under Edward the Fourth, about ninety thousand pounds a year. And under Henry the Seventh, it's about one hundred and thirteen thousand pounds a year.
1: Right, So yeah. he's a uh, lots of money yeah. coming
0: in. Land revenues alone are £42,000 a year. So he's getting more out of land than Henry VI was getting out of everything. So for the first time, there's more money coming in.
1: But how, does this re- how, does this, this how is this good for the ban on the street?
0: Um, well, because the country is rich and stable.
1: Yeah.
0: OK. It's got lots of money. Previously, Henry VI hadn't been able to pay his troops in France. Mm. Right. Whereas now got money to burn it wipes out the royal debt and it's a legendary treasure he was probably the richest king in terms of cash Mm. that the country had ever had probably Mm. because he's actually got all of this money it's not in loans and debts and everything he's physically got lots and lots of money in terms of his international status as we touched on before in Batonunas he's a big player on the uh, European stage the 1492 Treaty of Etaple with France led to them abandoning their support for Warbeck, but they also paid England an annual indemnity, um, and sort of some of the arrears from with the previous treaty. Apparently, significantly improved Henry's income, and um, also improved the relations between the countries as well.
1: So, managed to get a treaty out of them and remain friends and money, money.
0: In uh, 1496, he signed the Intercursus Magnus, which is a major commercial treaty with Venice, Florence, Netherlands and the Hasiatic League. And there were trade privileges and fixed duties, particularly benefited English wool merchants. Mm. Doing some good stuff there. And 1497 was the Treaty of Medina del Campo, which was the alliance and marriage with Spain and Catherine of Aragon. Spain, as we said, major new power on the European mm. stage, and Catherine of Aragon is the most prestigious royal bride, Catherine de Valois, So England... You know, it's good, but it's actually a player. Yeah, the front stage. and centre. And he's achieved this. Another one of his great legacies is controlling the nobility. In the Wars of the Roses, they've been very powerful. we would had the overmighty figures like Richard, Duke of York, like the Earl of Warwick. Henry stops all this.
1: Yeah, we've had years of that too.
0: Yeah, through natural wastage, the period shrinks from uh, 55 peers to just 42 by the end of the reign. Because Henry just doesn't make new ones. Mm. Takes the land for himself. He also uses bonds and recognisances. So this is where there are contractual obligations between the nobles and the king. And if the nobles don't comply with it, Henry puts in stiff financial penalties. So they have to remain loyal to him or else they risk being severely damaged financially by the punishments that Henry puts in. So he pretty much emasculates the nobles. So um, 46 of the 62 peerage families were at Henry's mercy during his reign. Seven were under attainder for potential treason. Thirty-six were bound by these recognizances, these contractual obligations owing him money, and three he had constrained by other means. Wow. So he's really got his thumb Yeah, all of the nobles. Be, really, so they end up being far less powerful than they've been in previous years. No more Warwicks or Dukes of York. And they're given a say in government through great councils, so they're not completely pushed out. And despite all of this, There are no real major rebellions from his nobility in all this period, so he keeps them on side.
1: Probably relieved to have a bit of stability, I reckon.
0: Indeed, but he's got control over the nobles.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He also has a very cultured court. He's often described as something of a miser, but there's lots of frivolity going on, lots of good times. Um, Spends lavishly on magnificent ceremonies, clothing, jewellery, festivities, music. Um, Records show that he lost quite a lot of money at cards, dice, tennis and archery. No record that he ever won any money. Um, and also, he puts a lot of money on palaces, um, particularly Richmond Palace. Um, which
1: becomes... Uh, oh, what does, does it become Hampton court?
0: No, no, it's separate, but it is on the river as well, right. so you have to get there by boat. A magnificent Palace, built on the site of Sheen, which had been built by Richard II, but knocked down when his wife died. Um, very impressive, looks very lovely. Against this, you could argue that, as everything with Henry, he does it for a reason... He's aware of the propaganda value, both to his people, but in particular foreign visitors, of looking good, having the pageantry, yeah. having the ceremony that really says this is royalty, this yeah. is power, this is stability. So it's arguably that he uses it rather than being necessarily a, a fun king. Yeah, But still, it's all looking nice. His legacy is very impressive. Brings peace and unity to England after the Wars of the Roses. As we said, the marriage to Elizabeth York Unites the Yorkist Lancastrians, and of course we have the famous Tudor Rose, the red and the white together. His record ultimately is that he successfully holds his throne for 24 years. In the previous 24 years, there had been five kings, all of whom at one stage were deposed.
1: That is impressive.
0: He completely reverses everything that's gone on before. And when he dies and Henry VIII becomes king, it's the first uncontested transfer of power since 1422. Nearly 100 years. Nearly 100 years since the father had been able to pass on the throne to his son without any problems.
1: Yeah, okay, well done, that man.
0: But of course, we have some negatives as well. Firstly, we have Wales. Now, when we did Bosworth at the start, we made much about how he had these claims for Welshness and he used it to gain support. But actually, it's maybe a little arguable how Welsh he really was in terms of his heart and what he actually does. So although he names his eldest son Arthur, harking back to this Welsh mythology, there are limits to his Welshness. He's got a lot of English and French blood in there, as well as the Welsh. Spent his formative years exiled across um, in Brittany and France. No evidence he ever spoke or understood Welsh. And indeed, after he becomes king, although he gives some minor posts for some Welshmen at court, he doesn't really do a lot for Wales. So he doesn't let them uh, revive the troublesome Marcher lordships which had been there previously. Resists all Welsh calls for vengeance against English lords in the area. It just doesn't really do a lot for the country, and most particularly, and most interestingly, I think the Tudor name is very, very rarely used by Henry the Seventh or any of his descendants, isn't it? Not until the 18th century that the Tudor dynasty starts being called the Tudors, because, as we've established, the Tudor origins of Henry the Seventh our lowly Welsh squire, butler to the Bishop of Bangor, is not a really <laughs> very strong thing to remind people so of when you you've got himself? a weak claim to the throne. Uh, initially he called himself Richmond, because he was the Earl of Richmond, but then you know, he's, he's king. So he's 177. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, you know... What was so it, what, going forward a bit? What did Henry VIII call himself? Yeah. Henry VIII, because he uncontested. Yeah, right?
0: king. He also has limited innovation in government, although it's very personal, which is a bit of a new thing. Essentially, he just inherits things that have been put in place by Edward IV and Richard III. Apparently, the Parliament of Henry VII didn't really do anything much of significance. Main development centred around uh, the justices of the peace, which is just at local level, so it's more about law enforcement than any new policy that Henry's put in place. And there's little evidence Henry Lee really did much to improve law and order, except where there was financial benefit to be gained. Mm. Now, the Richard III Museum on Twitter, when I said we were doing Henry VII next, he said he wasn't very excited. Henry VII, a little more than an over-ambitious mummy's boy. Now, why would Richard say something like that? He used to say something like that because Henry VII's mother, Margaret Beaufort, has an incredibly strong influence over him. Um, a Spanish envoy, Pedro de Ayala, said he is much influenced by his mother and his followers in affairs of personal interest and in others. The Queen... His wife, as is generally the case,
1: does not like it. So he's, she's got troubles with mother-in-law? Yeah,
0: a mother-in-law from hell in a way. She's got huge influence over her son. She's the most prominent woman at court. And she's a really, really powerful woman. Had total control over her own property. Um, 1499 took a vow of chastity. Turned her manor house into a palace. And her th- husband, Sir Thomas Stanley, is welcomed there as a friend. But not as a husband. Really? Yeah, oh. so she is wearing the trousers in yeah. that relationship and it's argued she's wearing the trousers in the royal relationship yeah, yeah. so they argue that he's sort of doing his mother's bidding to a certain extent rather than being a powerful mm. ruler in his own right he's also severely criticised particularly in his late years for being sort of financially greedy and rasping uh, Polydor Virgil said that he began to treat his people with more harshness and severity than had been his custom in order as he himself asserted to ensure they remained more thoroughly and entirely in obedience to him It is not indeed clear whether at the start it was greed, but afterwards, greed did become apparent. So it becomes really notorious, particularly after the 1500, when he sets up a thing called the Council Learned in Law. This contained Henry's most powerful and trusted courtiers, particularly two men called Empson and Dudley, who ruthlessly pursue all of his fiscal policies and getting the fines from the nobles. They're really, really hated. And in fact, as soon as Henry's dead, very quickly, they're executed. Really? Yes. They're not liked. Um, the fines and demands placed on nobility, although it did keep them under thumb, it could have led to rebellion because they really hated it, yeah. as you would. Um, and the personal monarchy aspect of this, rather than an efficient administrator, Henry's involvement shows, actually, that he just had a complete lack of trust yeah. in anybody else to do the job. And at this period, kings aren't expected to be civil servants. No, so though it's no, impressive quite, in yeah. a way, it's not really the job he was um, born to do.
1: No, he was born to be more of a warrior.
0: And he's deeply unpopular. His experiences made him a very guarded and suspicious man, having grown up in exile and having always to avoid getting captured and murdered. His financial administration and treatment of the barons meant he wasn't particularly loved at the time. After his wife dies, he becomes even more recluse. The court becomes a bit sombre. He wears black quite a lot. Um, The extent of his suspicion is that he sets up the first personal bodyguard for the King of England, i.e. the Yeoman of the Guard. Um, the Beef Eaters. I'm not sure if they, are they the Omen they? of the Guard? I'm not sure if they are the Omen well, of Well, anyone knows. The, the Omen against... of the Guard still exist, I think. And at his funeral sermon, and the Bishop John Fisher said, Ah, King Henry, King Henry, if thou were alive again, many one that is here present now would pretend a grateful pity and tenderness upon thee.
1: He said that at his funeral? his
0: funeral. He said some nice things, as well, about his good governance, but he does intimate that actually people didn't like him that much.
1: Wow. That's bold. So when so is Henry VIII... the
0: Indeed, but when Henry VIII becomes king, it's wild, wild popularity. They're overjoyed when Henry becomes king, and that must partly be because they didn't like Henry the Seventh. Yeah. So how are we going to score him for subjectivity? We've got a lot of things where you think maybe you wouldn't want to have been ruled by him at the time, but in but hindsight, you'd
1: be begrudgingly grateful. I think it's mm. really, really good. <clears> yeah. Um, Credit where well it's due. I'm grudgingly giving him a really high score. <laughs> Because you've got to look at the the, um, uh, the overall situation. There's been 90 years of, of five monarchs and yeah. all this. And he's getting the, everything back in control, back in order. Nobles back in order. Finances back in order. Uh, a succession back in order. Everyone can breathe. The little pro, um, uprisings quickly put down. Yeah. As you can expect from a usurpation. But... I mean, it's not done. He didn't salt the land like well, yeah. William. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can't think. He d- I mean, in a way, this is the reverse of his battliness because there's not this, this, mm. these great battles. It's great for the average chap.
0: Yeah,
1: I've got to go eight.
0: Yeah, I think I think I'm going to give him an eight as well. I think mm. the only reason I wouldn't go higher is that actually, at the time, you wouldn't have liked it at all. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true.
0: Um, but eight. Um, Both of us means 16 in total That's a very good score for subjectivity Longevity So he rules from 1485 to 1509 That's 24 years Pretty impressive Pretty impressive indeed Particularly given the difficult circumstances in which he was operating
1: Dynasty Not the program
0: He has um, seven children initially Unfortunately four of them uh, die young Including Prince Arthur himself But he has three surviving children including a son who succeeds in Henry VIII.
1: So who are the other two?
0: And there are some daughters as well. Oh, right. Anyway, so that's three for Dynasty, which, um, coming off the back of two successive zeros... Yeah, it's big. It's good. So that gives him a total of 60 points, which is pretty good. That is pretty
1: good. It's a high score.
0: Anyway, come to the end of that, except we must now decide whether or not he has that mark of greatness, that's Incredible achievement, that lasting legacy, the star quality, which we call...
1: Rex Factor! I'm going to set up my store right now. Set it up and talk away. Right. Here are my wares. No. Because... I... You've got to have some pizzazz. And what comes screaming out of this to me is that he is like a very dull middle management accountant. Mm -hmm. Right? He's... Um doesn't really get involved with the battliness stuff, but he knows how to organise it. He knows what he needs to do to get the outcome. Yeah. He doesn't want any flair there. Mm. Right. Um doesn't risk and when he does risk something, it's just to get the the treaty, which is fine, it works well, you know. Um again the scandal. He's going home in his BMW <laughs> three series to his wife. It's lovely, but it's not gonna it's not gonna win you the Rex Factor. Financial management, taking an obsessive interest mm. in it, um, again great. But you're not how you don't want an accountant as king. Well, you do when I mean, it's called him well in subjectivity, mm. but it's not going to get you the Rex factor.
0: The problem for all sort of historians of Henry of the Seventh trying to make him more interesting is that his biggest selling point is the fact that he was really good at financial management.
1: Oh, really? Which yeah.
0: is hard to sell yeah. to people, and it's not quite as um, sexy as. Henry VIII
1: well, I think he just was dull. I mean, he I
0: suspect he would have been I reckon in person, I reckon he probably have a fairly dry sense of humor, I reckon he being Yeah, oh yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. A nice guy. But um for Henry VII survivor unlike Richard III, Henry is able to maintain it. Yeah. When he takes the throne and in his favor, he does win the crown by conquest at the Battle of Bosworth. He survives all those plots and rebellions, pretty much ends the Wars of the Roses, restores England's position as a major player in Europe. And his legacy that he leaves behind is a very rich, powerful, united kingdom, an uncontested succession. And all of the things which come afterwards from Henry VIII and Elizabeth could not have been possible if Henry VII hadn't worked so hard on his audit trails and putting out the plots to set the country up. It's Henry VII's achievement is to make England a powerful country that somebody can...
1: And I'm sure... That Richard Branson would say <laughs> that I couldn't be where I am today without these, inc- this group of incredibly clever accountants that sort it all out for me. But Richard Branson would get the Rex Factor, not them in the back. <laughs> he's he's not. He's just, he's back room. And it should be like Hen- that, that Henry VIII ended the War of the Roses with some incredible battle. Yeah. But instead it, it was his dad putting it... Getting it sorted so that he could be incredible, but it's just not, it just doesn't have an it doesn't have anything. And it's very similar in a way to Henry the
0: Fourth, who usurped the throne but then spent the rest of the time just holding on to the throne, putting down mm. rebellions, and then is quite tired out by the end of it. And then of course Henry the is able to inherit all the good work yeah. and run yeah, it. Yeah. So it's quite similar there that Henry the Eighth takes over from his father. From that, so the yeah. father it's unfair in a way that the the one who does the hard work and sets himself to it with dedication, gets forgotten, and then the son who blows it all on parties and and divorces is the one who wins the Rex Factor, but...
1: He was the right person in the right place at the right time, Mm. Who is exactly what um, England needed, Mm. just someone orderly and putting everything in order, Um, but it doesn't translate to a Rex Factor win.
0: So final decision, yes or no, does he have the Rex Factor?
1: Yes. No, of course, no way, (laughs) no way. (laughs) So your first answer. (laughs) No, well, I mean, uh, what about you? Well, I, you know, I was sort of
0: in an R in because it's a very impressive achievement what he does, particularly when you think of what came before. Yeah. The previous twenty-four years, he does incredibly well, and it is a great legacy and a great achievement. But I do agree that ultimately he doesn't have that star quality, and you do need something more than just governing well.
1: I think the X factor. I thought. I think he deserves
0: credit having ruled really well and in many ways being a better king than someone like Henry VIII definitely probably proved to be he's a very very good king but we're not doing who's the best Exactly, that's not what it's ruler about, yeah. we're doing who's got the star quality we're much more shallow than that oh, yeah. and on the shallow front I'm afraid Henry VII doesn't quite have it so I would ultimately have said no as well
1: I think it's a shame. I thought it was going to be one of those ones where I was really surprised, mm. and if I'd have done any research beforehand, as I regularly do, <laughs> um, I'd have probably thought definitely I'm going for X Factor, and there'd be all these stories of Battle of Bosworth. But it's just it's a it's a bit grey,
0: mm. grey blur. Mm. So that's a no for Henry the Seventh. Credit for having done a very good job, but he'd get a round of applause. He'd yes. get
1: he'd get best supporting actor.
0: Yes. But no Rex Factor, so that's it, Henry the Seventh. He doesn't have the Rex Factor, but he's got a very good record that he can be proud of. Yes, but an honorary round of applause. But no music. So that's it, Henry the Seventh. Next time we finally got there, it's the legendary King Henry the Eighth.
1: You're Edward the First. My Edward the First. You are Edward the First. I mean, but he's your Edward the First. Indeed,
0: and for many other people who've been listening, he's the one that people have been looking forward to. After Edward, I think people who've
1: been listening now appreciate Edward the First, so they'll be going. Well, I'd still like to catch up, but
0: exactly, I'm sure we will have um, a few weeks off while Ali goes to uh, American holiday and I research Henry (laughs) Eighth as you will be doing in America. Oh yeah. Uh, But until then, goodbye for me. Cheerio.